All right, if you would, open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. What we've been doing all semester is uh, what we've been, we've been going through the Old Testament to see how all the Old Testament is ultimately leading up to Jesus. And obviously we couldn't preach through all the Old Testament one semester, so we're trying to hit some of the big highlights. And this one tonight, 2 Samuel 7, is a, is a major text in all the Bible. Matter of fact, the New Testament will refer to this many, many times to help us understand who Jesus is. Uh, this is what's called the Davidic Covenant, or would you could just say the, the Covenant with David. And uh, it has huge implications, not just for understanding who Jesus is, but also for how we are to live in light of Him being the true King. So, 2 Samuel 7, verses 1-17. through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God, which is where God's presence was, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and I have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make for you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He, he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul... Whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, 
And in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. God's people said? All right, let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. And it is a privilege yet again to look at your word, to look at the book. Father, would you help us as we look at the book to see the King of Kings, to see the Lord of Lords, whose throne and whose dominion and whose power will never fade. And Father, by the power of the Spirit, as we try to see Him, give us a great sense of Your presence. And as we understand who Jesus is for us, may we live in light of that truth. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being our King. So would you help us to live in light of your kingdom? We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Here's what one clinical psychologist has written in an article a couple years ago on insecurity. Here's what she says. We all know what it's like to feel as insecure as an email password. We know we should raise our hands in class, but we're afraid we'll sound stupid. We pine silently for our crush, but keep our distance so they don't laugh in our face. We want to voice our idea in the meeting, but we can't find the words until someone else says them first. Call it social anxiety, self-doubt, or inhibition. Whatever we call it, it's insecurity. And it's a universal part of the human condition. I think all, all of us at some level can relate to some of that. We're all working through and battling against our own insecurities at different levels. And we need to ask the question, what is insecurity? Here's what insecurity is. Insecurity is whenever your pride sees your own faults. Insecurity is whenever you are trying to be king, but you see that you're not a very good king. And all you're trying to do is, as king of your life, you're trying to guard your kingdom, but you realize you're not very good at it and your kingdom is very weak. That's what insecurity is. And as we live in insecurity, here's what we're doing. We're constantly analyzing different people and different things, and we're trying to figure out who are the threats or what are the threats that could hurt our kingdom. We ask questions like, what if I'm attacked? How can I make myself look more impressive? How can I make people respect me? Or how can I tear down others so I can build my kingdom up? You see, we live in insecurity even in the avenues of social media. How many of us have seen different body types on social media and it's immediately made us reflect and say, but my body doesn't look like that. Or we try to actually pose ourselves as something on social media, what we're really not, because we're really trying to see if we can get some affirmation that we long for. We show our insecurities even in sports, trying to prove ourselves, or at least trying to keep proving ourselves that we really still are the same athlete we were in middle school and high school. We try to prove ourselves, and we live out our insecurities with our academics, We live out our insecurities at parties by trying to show people that we're cool, we're relevant. And we even do it in things such as our cars and our clothes. We can go on and on and on. But here's the thing about insecurity. We never let people in 
But at the same time, we're desperate to be known. You ever notice that about yourself? We never let people in because we're afraid that they'll see how weak we are, but at the same time, we're desperate to be known. So we love, it's almost like to tell people to come in, but then we quickly give them the stiff arm. We often, in our insecurities, we become overly confident online, but we're painfully quiet, maybe in person. Or we can become quickly defensive, or we just turn into a spirit of judgmentalism. Because here's what we do whenever we live amongst people with insecurities. Y'all seen the videos on Instagram and TikTok whenever two guys walk past each other and it digs into their thoughts and they're like, I could beat that guy up. They never say it out loud, but they're both thinking that. What we say in our insecurities every single day as we pass people walking to class, as we pass them in the union, and as we compare our test scores to other people, as we say, my kingdom could beat up their kingdom. That's what we do. But what we long for is rest. We long for the time when we can finally just quit trying to be enough. We long to have freedom from judgment. We long to actually be vulnerable and at the same time be accepted, don't we? You see, if insecurity is basically whenever we're trying to be king and we're trying to guard our kingdom, then really it boils down to this. Can there actually be a king out there who can give us security? Can there actually be a king out there who can be a better king than if we had all the wisdom and power? And that's actually what Scripture says. That there really is a king out there who is a way better king than you and I could ever be. And it's actually when we understand that, that we can learn more and more to kill our insecurities. You see, this text in 2 Samuel 7, you look back at verse 1. It says, Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. I love that because when it says it had, that the Lord had given him rest, it's the same Hebrew phrase from Genesis 2. When God had made Adam fall asleep uh, in the garden when he was calling him to rest. And here's what had happened with David. David's gone out and he started to defeat his enemies and he's finally reached at least a season of rest. And he gets really excited. And he wants to pay God back. But God's almost like Lee Corso and he says, not so fast, my friend. Let me bless you. And that's what we're going to see. That God secures for us a king so that we can learn to kill our insecurity. So first off, we see here in this text that the king is promised. Secondly, we see the king as promised as we see Jesus. And then thirdly, we see that the king has promised. So the king is promised, the king as promised, and the king has promised. There you go. Come on now. Look back at your text. Look at verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. God said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house? God's about to move in and make a covenant with David, these oath-binding promises with David. But here's the thing we know about this God. He's always been a covenant-keeping and covenant-making God. Even in eternity past, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, developed the covenant of what's called the covenant of redemption. Knowing that there would be a sea of lost people, that God decided to have mercy and grace on some of those people, and that the Father would send His Son to come and rescue them. 
And then after God created, it wasn't long until they fell into sin. But yet, even when they fell into sin, God gives almost a reiteration of that promise in Genesis 3.15, which is so familiar to you now, that one day there would be the snake crusher and he would come and he would be born of the woman, a real man, but yet somehow more than a man, and he would crush the ultimate enemy. But God made another, another covenant with Noah Later on, and that actually happens in Genesis 6 through chapter 9, when God sees that the people of the world were actually, instead of living in light of Him, they were living more like the serpent. And so He sent a flood of His wrath, which is what they deserved, but yet He decided to show mercy on one family. He decided to show mercy on a man named Noah and his family. And it was all of grace. And God gave and He made a covenant with Noah and what He was saying is this. Let this rainbow in the sky forever, even as we look at it today, let this rainbow in the sky, when you see it, may you be reminded that as that bow is this way, so the arrow must go up at me in order to save you. That the flood of God's wrath is what we deserve. But God has said, look, I'll take that wrath upon myself one day. But then He keeps going. Several years later, he makes a covenant with Abraham. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, he calls them when Abram is living in the land of Ur. And when he's living in the land of Ur, he calls him out and he says, look, I'm going to make of you a great name. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I'm going to give you a great land. And so all of a sudden now, these covenants are starting to build on each other. God is not... Trying to start over, he's just expanding what he's trying to say. And so somehow piecing this together, here's what's going on. That in eternity past, the Father said he would send the Son to save sinful people. And we know that the Son would be the snake crusher. And the snake crusher would have to be the one who ultimately would take the flood of God's wrath to save his people from their sins. And we know that when he does that, he'll give them a great name. He'll make them a great nation. And he'll give them a great land. You see, it just keeps building, right? And then he to Moses. God gives Moses his Ten Commandments. And he says, look, you are in covenant with me. You are to obey these Ten Commandments. But the people of Israel knew. They knew they couldn't do it. And so now we're starting to see this. Is that in order to be freed from God's wrath, now that snake crusher who's going to take the flood of God's wrath, he's going to have to be perfect. You see, God has always been making these covenant promises. He's never backed down from any of them. It's almost like the picture of, maybe you've seen this as you've studied some history, when they were excavating the remains of what happened in Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius had erupted. And as Pompeii, or excuse me, as Mount Vesuvius had erupted, people in Pompeii, they either ran down into the basement or they ran to the roof to try to hide But at the city gates, there was one man. And it was a Roman soldier in his position as he was called, holding on to his weapon. And as the vapor and the ash and everything ran towards him, he secured his position because that's where his orders were. You see, God's promises never move. They never run away. They never falter. So no matter what God somehow faces, as it were, and definitely what His people face, His promises are always true. And then we get to David. 
God's going to make this covenant with David. And you see this. Look at verse 8. Now therefore thus you shall, you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep. You know, sheep back then were, it wasn't the most noble job. Hint, hint, surprise, surprise, right? Well, David goes from being the youngest in his family to being just the, this, the, you know, the sheep boy. Now he's king over everyone. And God's making a promise to him. He's going to say, look, verse 9, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so they, will, they, will, that, so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. God's telling David, and I, and I think you can hear some of these, these reiterations of these past covenants. You see how God told David he's going to make for you a great name. Does that sound familiar? It's the same promise he made to Abraham. So God's not done with that promise. It's just building up. God also said that he's going to give David and this king, he's going to give them stability. He's going to give them security. He's going to give them a land. There's going to be someone who's going to defeat their enemies. Does that not sound familiar for what he's promised in the past? God's promises aren't moving. They're just building. They're just getting stronger. And what we've been seeing all throughout the Old Testament is that it's ultimately leading to Jesus. But before we get there, we need to see what's so amazing about this is because for a king who's surrounded by your enemies, you would think there's no way that could happen. In, in that geographical context where Israel was, some of the most fertile grounds in the, middle, in the uh, ancient Near East, and these massive uh, dynasties and superpowers around them, they coveted that area because if they could take that over, then their trade possibilities and their trade routes would be amazing. So David's hearing these promises and he's thinking, there's no way these promises can come true. But God is saying, look, I'm not just having wishful thinking here. This is going to determine your reality. There will be a king who comes from you who will rule and he will reign and his throne will never end. It's amazing because all of a sudden David becomes the prototypical king of Israel. And he's the one who the people of Israel through the years would be looking for. And, and son after son after son of David, they would look at them and they would say, is this the one? Is this the one who will finally fulfill that covenant? You see, God desires to give his people a king. But yet, that promise had to wait. It was promised. But they had to wait numerous, numerous years before they could have a king that they could ultimately see all their enemies vanquished. And that's where we lead up to Jesus. Now, here we go. Buckle your seatbelts. We'll give you a lot of scripture text. Here comes Jesus on the scene. This has been over a thousand years since God had given this covenant promise to David. And even part of that thousand years was a time of 400 years where God's uh, voice through the prophets was silent. People were obviously thinking, where's God? Has he forgotten about us? But then the book of Matthew in chapter 1, verse 1, it literally begins in the Greek, it literally begins with the book of Genesis. It says there, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, but literally in the Greek it means the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. In other words, a new beginning. But it says something about him. Jesus Christ who? The son of David. 
It says that when uh, Jesus was going to be born of the Virgin Mary, that the angel had to appear to Joseph. And, he had to, and when he appeared to Joseph, he addressed Joseph as Joseph, son of David in Matthew 1 verse 20. And when Mary and Joseph had to go and, uh, uh, to report for the census in that day, Mary was going to give birth. Luke 2 verse 4 says that they were to go to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because Joseph was of the house and lineage of who? David. In Matthew 2 verse 2, the wise men appear after, De- after Jesus had been born, and they ask the question, where is he who has been born, what? King of the Jews. I think it's also kind of interesting whether that's, that's a point here or not. Maybe there is. But you remember that the wise men saw the star? And they said, that's the king's star. Well, who else saw stars and had promises for them way, way, way long ago? But Abraham. <laughs> Jesus, after he is tempted for many years, uh, I mean, excuse me, after many years of his life, he goes into the wilderness in Matthew 4, verse 17. After he is tempted for 40 days and 40 nights by Satan, he starts to preach his first sermons and he begins to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And wherever there is a kingdom, there's a king. So you know what Jesus is saying. He is ultimately, he is outright saying, I am the king. In Matthew 9 verse 27, people were beginning to understand who Jesus is. And it says, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men, which is so amazing, because the blind men could see better than the men who could see. The two blind men followed him. They're crying aloud and they said, have mercy on us. What? Son of David. Matthew 12, verse 23, after healing a a demon-possessed blind and mute man. I mean, this dude's not just demon-possessed and he's not just blind and he's not just mute. He's all of them. I mean, that'd be tough, right? Jesus heals this man and they begin to ask questions among themselves and they say, can this be the son of David? Matthew 21, verse 9, you remember... As Jesus, in his last days, he is the, what's called the triumphal entry. And he's going into Jerusalem, and he's riding on a horse, right? That's what he's riding on. Now, what's he riding on? A donkey. And what's amazing about that is as he's riding on a donkey, it is fulfilling a prophecy in Zechariah 9, verse 9, where it says, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus knew what he was doing. And as he's riding into Jerusalem, the people were shouting around him. And imagine what this must have sounded like. They said, Hosanna to the son of David. In other words, the people are saying, look, this is finally it. Imagine what it must have felt like. Because remember, Israel at the time, they're being ruled by Rome. Imagine the exhilaration when people were beginning to to whisper and talk with each other and say, is this finally the son of David that we've waited for? And he is. You see, in Matthew 22, verse 42, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ, meaning the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him that he would be the son of David. Literally, when we call Jesus, Jesus Christ, In a way, we're also calling him Jesus, the son of David, because that's who the Messiah is. But yet, 
He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the king we thought he was going to be. Because when he showed up on the scene, we thought that he was going to give just this earthly kingdom. And he was going to dash down the Caesars and he was going to dash down Egypt. He was going to dash down all these other political parties in the, era, in the area. And he would eventually create this massive earthly world kingdom. But that's not what he did. And people hated that. And so they threw him up on the cross. And when they put him up on the cross, it says in Matthew 27, verse 37, that the crime that he was put on the cross for, it says this, and over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Isn't that ironic? They were mocking him for saying that he was the king of the Jews, but yet at that very moment is when he's crushing the head of the serpent. Do you remember when Satan was tempting Jesus? One of the temptations that Satan gave Jesus, he said, look, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of of earth. I'll give them to you. And Satan could have. But Jesus knew that's not the way to be the true king. Satan was going to do anything it took to get Jesus to not go through with the cross. That's what Satan knew. That's how Jesus would be the true king. And Jesus knew that's the only way. And even though all the people wanted him to have the earthly kingdom and they were saying, Lord, come down from that cross if you really are the king. But he knew if he's going to be the king, he must take the wrath of God on that cross. He must crush the head of the serpent. That's what's been the the covenant redemption that the father made with the son. That's what he would do. And as he's on the cross, he reiterates actually a psalm of David Psalm 22, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what David cried. Jesus does not stay dead, but he rises from the dead and he meets his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18. He says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Ladies and gentlemen, let me present to you the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Not merely the King of the Jews. The true Son of David. The true King who everyone in this room and everyone outside of this room and everyone throughout all of history, you will have to answer to him. He's the one who crushes enemies. He's the one who makes a great name. He's the one who gives stability. He's the one who lets us enter into heaven's land. But it's only if you embrace him as king. Because here's the thing about Jesus. You and I do not make him king. He is king. The question is this. Will you bow the knee to him or not? He is the king. Peter proclaims that in Acts 2 in, this, in that Pentecost sermon. And he says that Jesus is indeed the greater David. And it's interesting because the nations were gathered around uh, Peter to hear him proclaim that. In Philippians 2 verse 10, Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. You only bow to a king. Paul says again in 1 Timothy 6.15 that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in Revelation 5 verse 5, the promise to God's people says, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Y'all, here's who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who subdues us to himself. Jesus is the one who crushes our enemies beneath his feet. Jesus is the one who is sovereignly ruling over all things and in the favor of his people. 
He's the one who furthers his kingdom and he beats back the gates of hell. He's the one who frees us from dominion of sin. He's the one who frees us from having to live under the law. So now we can live under grace. Jesus is the one who reverses the curse in our lives. Jesus is the one who no one can defeat. And Jesus is the one who is preparing your heavenly home. Amen? That's who he is. He is the king. You don't make him king. There's a story that one man tells of some guys in seminary and they didn't have a, a gym at the seminary to play basketball, so they would go and play basketball at a, at a local public school. And as they were playing basketball, there would always be this, this elderly gentleman who was the janitor there, and almost all the times he'd be reading his Bible. And so finally one day, one of the guys walked over to him and saw him reading his Bible, and, and he noticed that he was reading the book of Revelation. And he said, Sir, do you understand what you're reading? Seminary students, sometimes we're a little prideful. And he says, oh, yes. He said, well, what does it mean? He said very quietly, it means that Jesus is going to win. That man went on to say that's the best summary of the book of Revelation out there. Jesus is going to win. Do you know why Jesus is going to win? Because he has already won. He is the king. And Revelation is the book that is saying that of all the thrones that all the earth can produce, none of them match his throne. He reigns above all people. He reigns above all rulers, all diseases, all political regimes, everything going on, even and especially when it doesn't look like it. He is the king and he is reigning. He's the son of David. You see, what makes that amazing is because God knows we have insecurities. He knows that we're all trying to be king of our own kingdoms. But really, at the end of the day, we know that we're not very good at being king and we need a true king. Now, so what? What does that mean for you and me? Here's what it means. Look back at your text. At the end of verse 9, God makes this promise to David. He says, I will make for you a great name. Here's what happens. Because Jesus is the greater David, he has the great name name. When you get Jesus, you get the great name. That's what you get. Because when you get Jesus, you get everything, but you can't get anything unless you get Jesus. You get Jesus and everything that he wins for you. You see, here's what it means for you and me. If, if in Jesus, we have a great name, it means that we do not have to try to strive to have our own legacy. We don't have to live under the curse of saying you have to leave a legacy everywhere you go because here's the thing, in Christ we already have one. We don't have to live with the fear that haunts us of always being misrepresented by other people because here's the thing, Jesus is the one who represents us. And no matter what people on this earth do to try to mar your name or to throw your name in the, in the mud piles, it was said of Spurgeon that he had joked one time as people were making fun of him in London that he said his name was like a soccer ball that was being kicked around in the streets of London. But here's the thing, no matter what people do to you in this earth, in Christ, you have a great name. You don't have to live in the insecurity of what might people say about me. In Christ, because you have a great name, it means that you don't have to live with your Messiah complex. That means this. You don't have to try to fix everyone's problems. 
Because we all know we love to fix people's problems, and when we do, it makes us have a great name. You don't have to try to be the Messiah, because he is. It means you don't have to be the primary, primary influence in everyone's life. It means that you can actually live for Christ's name rather than always trying to live for your name. It means that you can stop trying just to prove to people that you're really a mature Christian. Because Jesus has your name. You can stop trying to prove to others by your grades or by parties or by sports or by materialism or whatever it is because your name is knit with Jesus. You know what that also means? If you have Jesus, then you have his great name. That means this, that you are not defined by your past sins. You're not. No matter what anyone else says, Jesus' name is what defines you. That's your identity. You see, sometimes we need to be like Mozart's father. Mozart's father was actually a phenomenal musician. But no one remembers Mozart's father. Well, because of Mozart. He's pretty incredible. But at some point, we need to be fine of living in the shadow of saying, look, I'll be Mozart's father as long as there is a Mozart. You see, some of us in this room, what we're trying to do is we want to be the star of our movie and we want everyone else to be the side characters. But here's what Christianity is. Christianity is basically saying this. Look, your movie stinks. But you can have an incredible part where there's a main character who's the best character you've ever seen in your life. And you can enter into that story. That's what you can have in Jesus. We also see that, look at verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I will plant them. What God is telling David here is that he's going to give David stability and security. And we have that in Jesus Christ. Some of you long for that. You long for a time when you can finally stop moving from house to house, moving your furniture from room to room. Some of you have been doing this for years. You're finally ready just to rest. What's amazing about heaven is it's described in Revelation 21, 25, and it says this, that the gates of heaven will never be closed. You ever go to bed and you're almost asleep and then you open your eyes and you say, did I lock the front door? Yeah. We get nervous about that, even in Stillwater. But here's the thing. In heaven, the doors are just open. Because there are no threats. It's stable. It's secure. You don't have to worry about it. It means that in heaven there will finally not even be a potential threat. There will be no enemies lurking around. It means that if Jesus really is the king and he's on your side, then finally one day you will get to a place where you will never have to go to what-if land. We all go to what-if land every day, don't we? And we think about the worst possible scenario, and it just wears us out mentally, physically, emotionally, whatever, Ali. But in Jesus, you have stability. You see, if you have stability and you have security in Jesus as your king, it means that finally one day you'll be able to stop fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You'll be able to completely and fully rest mentally, physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. 
some of you think that that's not even possible. But that's what you have in Jesus. Do you think maybe this truth might be really precious in the eyes of the one million Ukrainian immigrants right now? However many of them are Christians and have these promises, you think maybe this might ring home for them? You see, in this text, it also says that God will give David, he'll give the greater son of David a house and a dynasty. Kings will come from him and the reign and the rule will never be threatened. It means that in Jesus Christ, we don't have to always be worrying about the future because he's got it. He really does. And whenever we're living in insecurities about what our future holds, it shows that we're actually not living in light of him really being king. It means that we don't have to worry about corrupt rulers taking over because Jesus is the king of kings. It means we don't have to worry if other people are going to eventually destroy us because if Jesus is the king, even if people kill the body, all we do is we're present with the Lord. I love the story recently that came out of an MI6 agent who hacked into a terrorist website. And he found on this website directions for how to make a pipe bomb. And instead of just taking it off, here's what he did. He actually changed the directions from making a pipe bomb that would be lethal to making it directions for a lovely cupcake. That's true, by the way. You see, here's the thing. The lethal plans that our enemies have for us, they're ultimately reversed because Jesus is king. And even though people might even try to kill you, all it will do is grow the church. Matter of fact, the worst thing the world can do to the church is to really bear down and persecute the church because it always grows them because Jesus is king. In Jesus, he is a king like us. You see, look at uh, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. In other words, someone who would come from David's very body. Jesus is really a man. He is God, but he's also like you and me in every single way yet without sin. Do you know what that means for you and me? It means we don't have to always live in the insecurity of, well, I don't know if anyone can ever relate to me in this. That produces more loneliness and isolation in this room than any of us can ever imagine. And I'm telling you, we're all struggling with the same stuff. But do you know who can ultimately relate to you most? This king. He can. He's a king like us. That means that we don't have to worry about a ruler ultimately harassing us. But Jesus, actually, as our true ruler, he's the one who represents us. He's the one who rules for us. He's the one who protects us. It means that when you're hurting, you can go to Jesus for healing. It means when you're needy, you can go to Jesus in prayer because he has all things at his disposal. It means that when you're attacked, you can go to Jesus for protection. It means that when you're doubting, you can go to Jesus for reassurance. He's the king. Jesus is also the one who has the unthreatened throne. Look at verse 16. (laughs) Excuse me. It says, your throne shall be established forever. You see, we don't see everything in subjection yet. But don't let your five senses be the only way in which you judge Jesus' reign and rule. Whether it's COVID, whether it's a war, whether it's a breakup, whether it's a death, 
Jesus is the king, especially when it does not seem like it. His throne is unthreatened. It means that finally one day in heaven we can stop battling, we can stop striving, we can stop fighting, and finally we can rest from all that spiritual warfare. It means that actually finally even your struggles with sins, even with addictions right now, it will finally be over. But only if you're in Christ. You see, if Jesus has an unthreatened throne, here's a really good news for you. It means that finally when you get to heaven, you can stop trying to run away from your past. Because no one's out to get you. You can be there and you can finally say, it's done. You don't have to worry about those sins that might be exposed or those struggles that might be brought back up. And ultimately, what we also see here is look at verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Because when Jesus is your king, it means he's not holding his wrath over your head and he's not making you earn his love. He's just giving it. He's not taking away his presence from you. He's not, uh, or excuse me, I could say it this way, because Jesus, because Jesus is the king, it means that we can stop trying to be so needy because we have what we need. And one of the ways in which we live out our, our insecurities is often actually in the college scene is that we live in the hookup culture because we think if I can just give myself over to someone sexually, then they'll embrace me. But in Jesus Christ, you actually have love. And you have a better love than you could ever find if you just give yourself over to people. Jesus has a steadfast love that will never run away from you. His love is not like a a really tough college major that if you mess up, then you'll get dropped. You see, it also means this, that you can actually come into this room in a community of other sinners and you can stop trying to hold your act together because Jesus is king. You see, our insecurities are like begging for food on the street, but Jesus is often like our very giving grandparents when we go to Thanksgiving and they give us all the leftovers where we say, I literally am not going to be able to do enough with this. That's what Jesus does. He gives you more than you know what to do with. God secures for us a king so that we can learn to kill our insecurity. There's one day when a new Christian came to the Chinese church leader named Watchman Nee. And this young Christian, when he came to Watchman Nee, he was, he was really anxious and he was living in insecurities about his salvation. And he said to Watchman Nee, no matter how much I pray, no matter how hard I try, I simply cannot seem to be faithful to my Lord. I think I'm losing my salvation. And Nee said to him, do you see this dog here? It's my dog. He's an obedient dog. He's house trained. He never makes messes. He's a pure delight to me. You see that little baby boy in the kitchen? He's a mess. He throws his food around. I love this language. He fouls his clothes. He's a total mess. But who is going to inherit my kingdom? Not my dog. My son is. You are Jesus Christ's heir because it is for you that he died. Because Jesus is king, you do not have to be enough because he is. And you can run to him knowing with all your insecurities, 
You can run to him knowing that in him you are secure. Amen? That's what we need. That's what this campus needs. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beautiful truth that in Jesus Christ we really do have security. We really do have a king who fights for us, who protects us, who reigns for us, who rules for us, and who can help us rest. So whether in sickness or sorrow, pain and suffering, sin or addiction or whatever it is, may we look to him knowing that he will make all things right. Thank you, Lord Jesus, and help us to respond to you in singing your word. We ask all this in your name. Amen.